listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 268. So you're obviously not Paige. <laughs> so <laughs> no. welcome, welcome aboard, Justin. If you haven't, if you don't know Justin's voice, shame on you. He runs an extremely popular podcast on our network, Oil & Gas Onshore. Um, become quite a figure in OGGN. He's doing some great work out there. Um, but Justin, um, things are are changing for you. And uh, even though you will always be part of the family here, you're going on to bigger and better things. And just kind of real quick, tell the audience what's going on and where they can uh, keep keep up with you. Sure. Well, I appreciate it, Mark. And uh, it's it's funny because the whole reason I started uh, getting into podcasting was listening to this exact show. So uh, this is what the first show that I listened to, uh, energy related at all listened to it for a ton, you know, probably a good year back in the day, I think when even James Hahn was on it. Um, and so, uh, you know, and to be sort of have this be uh, kind of a closing ceremony, if you will, to be on this show and to, uh, you know, fill in for Paige, it's, it's actually an honor. And so I really appreciate it. Um, but yeah, I've just decided to, to kind of take things in a different direction in the podcasting world. But, uh, and so the, the podcast that I'm starting is called Wicked Energy with JG. Uh, I'm keeping the the Wicked brand sort of in the family. My wife has Wicked Holdings and a few other things on her side, but um, it's an energy focused podcast. And the vision there is to be the voice of energy and and just have really constructive conversations around powering the world and what it takes to get there. I want to unite the energy industry and, and change the narrative from us or them to us and them, which involves bringing all energy suppliers together and collectively working towards the North Star, which is supplying the entire world with abundant, reliable, affordable energy. Um, so that's the intent. And I'm just going to you know, have a lot of great industry thought leaders, companies that represent those values that I listed. Um, and yeah, just ultimately kind of build, uh, have the creative control to build something that, that I see fits for, for me and the family. So I couldn't be more excited and I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, uh, give a shout out, but, uh, oil and gas on shore has been an absolute, I mean, it's been a few years now. It's been, it's been a great experience. OGGN has been nothing but great support. Uh, and like I said, it's cool to, to come on oil and gas this week with you. I don't think we've ever done it. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to come on here and always part of the OGGN family and we'll always support. So I appreciate the opportunity. Hell yeah. And then Justin, I'm going to be one of your first listeners. I'll leave you your first review and you know me. <laughs> you better be good. <laughs> yeah. I'm no, sure it will be. Yeah, no, I will. I, uh, it's, it's actually, I haven't made the, the, you know, the full announcement yet, but I did the teaser episode, so it'll be. The same directories as always, you know, the Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, all that. Uh, if you search it up, Wicked Energy with JG, I've got a, a website, wickedenergy.io. Um, you know, and it's, it's again, it's it's bootstrapping it. So it's not quite as sexy as the OGGN website and everything else. I'm doing it all on my own. So uh, bear with me, but uh, the, the sound quality is there and then that's what matters and the content as well. So again, I appreciate it. And if you leave a review, hell, it could be one star like you guys got last week, which I had to laugh because I listened to last week's show. Um, I, you know, again, good or bad, I, I, I welcome all criticism. <laughs> yeah. Well, I already know that this could be an incredible show. 
Um, and speaking of incredible shows, um, one of the reasons that I wanted Justin to come on before he left is the fact that the show has grown so much. Our audiences have been loyal for years. And if you've noticed in your uh, podcast player of choice, you might have seen something pop up called the bonus episodes behind the curtain. OGGN, I mean, I'm sorry, All in Gas This Week behind the curtain. And first thing to our new listeners, to our existing listeners, the first thing is that show, even though it's behind a paywall, has no extra news content. I don't want any of our listeners to feel like that we are trying to make money off this show from you, the listeners. What we're actually trying to do is an experiment. If we release bonus content, stuff that uh, is not news articles, but basically behind the mic. So once Paige and I quit recording, what goes on after that? We just want to see if we charge a, a few dollars for that a month, if people will appreciate it and it provides value. So when you see that in your feed, uh, don't think that you're missing any of the news articles. You're not. The show's going to stay exactly the same. It's going to stay free for all of y'all. However, if you're curious about what happens after Paige and I turn the mic off, you know it's a couple dollars a month. Uh, feel free to sign up. Um, so once again, it's an experiment. It, it may be here forever and it may disappear in a month or two. We'll let you know. And speaking of letting you know, Justin, I think we got a review. Yes, you do. And before I get onto the reviews, I have to say there's so many conversations that happen in oil and gas. I and, and even in podcasting, I've had so many great conversations that happened either before or after the show. So I know for myself, there's a lot of value in those conversations. So for listeners out there, it's it's you know, even just to satisfy your curiosity to see what happens behind the scenes, I think it's a great idea. Anyway, continue Wait, before you go there. Yeah, I will yeah. give you a hint, Justin. It's actually explicit, which nobody would think that the oil and gas this week would be explicit, <laughs> but oil and gas behind the curtain is. So just, you know, be prepared. Yeah. Hey, the raw material, that's what it's all about. So, but this week's review is actually really good. The title's Great Find. And this person said, was looking to learn a little more about what was going on with energy and oil around the world. This was very educational. Thank you. Can't wait to tune in next time. What do you think, or sorry, what do you two think the gas prices will reach by the end of the year? Now, I wonder if they mean natty gas prices or, or fuel, like gasoline prices. Mark, what do you think? Let's say fuel prices. That's what everybody's um, is concerned about these days. Let's you and I grab a number. And on December 31st, we'll see who's closer to that number. Okay. Uh, so national average, I would say is going to, I'm going to, I'm going to probably surprise people. I'm going to say, uh, 490. Now, Justin, I did not rehearse this at all. Um, I'm at 435. So okay, pretty so, close to each other. Yeah. I, and, and again, I just, uh, I, I think there's a pivot and, and obviously this summer is going to be kind of nasty, but I, I see the market and we can talk more because I know there's some articles that talk, talk about this too, but I see the market balancing out unless demand just continues to skyrocket, which, uh, anyway, lo lots of interesting things happen, but I'm, I'm at 490. And, uh, if, if any, if I'm wrong, I bet I'm wrong on the downside. So it'll be 490 or less. Yeah. And I think 435, cause it's just a wild ass guess. If you want to know the truth, <laughs> yeah. hey, so much if I was more so accurate, people. yeah, if I was more accurate in my predictions, I sure as hell wouldn't be selling dirt in a bag. I can promise you. <laughs> and Justin sells drilling mud and fluids, by the way, it's not technically, well, I guess technically it is sometimes dirt in a bag, but <laughs> sometimes more it is important than that. Yeah, no, I know. All right, let's get into the news articles. Awesome. So the first one is uh, starts off, is big oil to blame for ha high gas prices, as Biden says? Here's what to know. So, uh, you know, Justin, I'm sure you've had a lot of friends and family reach out to you and ask you this. I've had a lot of friends and family, a lot of listeners. And there, this is a very complex problem that started way before Biden's administration took 
uh, office. So the short story, is he to blame? No, he's partially to blame, right? Um, there's things that that we could do as a country, as a federal government, and as states right now to drop pump prices, such as dropping or freezing uh, uh, taxes that would help a little bit. But this thing is so complex, and it started way before. If you listen to my predictions for this year back in November, I told you that we're going to head this way. This is before Ukraine, before Russia. Um, and then there's other things. So, you know, a lot of people don't understand that big oil is just a machine to produce hydrocarbons. We don't set prices. The market sets prices. Mm -hmm. And then uh, with high gas prices, I mean, I'm sorry, with high crude oil prices, which is the raw feedstock for gasoline and diesel, you naturally have higher gasoline and diesel prices. And people will ask me this, well, Mark, why doesn't the price of the pump go up and down with the price of a barrel of crude? Well, there's this whole system in between that causes lags, right? And it's everything from how it's priced and sold to how much it costs to move it, to how much it costs to refine it and then distribute that gasoline out to the retail stations. A couple of points just so you understand why Big Oil is not involved. So first thing is in the U.S., uh, companies like Exxon and Chevron own no gas stations. It's the least uh, valuable part of the value chain. So if you go to an Exxon Global gas station, that's owned by your neighbor, somebody called a jobber that owns three or four gas stations uh, to make a living. And what he does is he he abides by certain standards and pays a fee so that he can use the ExxonMobil name to market his gas station because more people will stop at ExxonMobil gas station than Joe's gas station. So first thing, remember, most of the super majors don't even own fuel stations in the U.S. Second thing is we're under this huge refinery constraint. You know, coming out of uh, the 2020 and the pandemic, we had over 300 oil and gas companies go bankrupt. So there's three, and this is here in the U.S., that's 300 companies that can't help produce more hydrocarbons. Then since nobody was driving, uh, they weren't consuming fuel. And since nobody was flying, nobody was consuming jet fuel. So a lot of refineries were shut down. When you shut down a refinery, you got to come back and do a lot of planned maintenance and repair. And it takes months, if not a year, to get that back online. And then we have not built a new refinery in the U.S. since the 70s. And, and I know this, that Meridian refinery in North Dakota, which is which is crazy cool, but it's not big enough to actually make an impact yet. So when you look at all those parts and pieces, um, it's, it's big oil is not responsible for this. And the federal government could do things to help. The other part of it that is kind of um, kind of gray is investment money. In the U.S., most of the hydrocarbons that are produced are not produced by Exxon and Shell. They're produced by small independent operators. Once again, a family-run business a lot of times. They depend on capital to produce well. So basically, they borrow money. They drill a well. They go in production. They use those production numbers to prove to the bank or to the capital holder that it was a good investment, which then they then loan them more money to go drill another well. Right? It's almost like a domino effect. Well, what happened is before the 2020 uh, pandemic, the investor community had figured out, number one, that's not a good growth strategy. Number two, they should invest for profit, not for growth. But then you had this whole ESG uh, segment come in where investors were not uh, letting go of capital unless companies hit certain ESG metrics. You take all that together, it's a perfect storm to reduce the amount of drilling that these independent operators um or we're doing. And then Justin, you know, if, if, if I gave you unlimited budget and you hired the best crew out there and you went to drill a well and go in production, you can't do that in a week, can you? No. And that's the thing there, there's, you know, there's a huge lag by the time you drill complete and get a well on production. Um, so yeah, it, it, it just, it, you can't turn it on and off and, and most folks, and again, no fault of their own. It's just, you know, a lot of folks haven't been quite educated or have done their own research, but it takes time. And, Ultimately, there, there's so many moving parts and there's so many things that go into producing a well, um, whether that's personnel, which you know, right now finding labor is tough. 
um, you know, all these supply chain constraints. It's hard to find steel. There's a ton of steel that gets used in, uh, you know, setting casing in the whole, you know, pipelines, everything else. And so, you know, we're, we're strapped a little bit. And, and when you, when you underinvest in an industry, um, you know, there's, there's that lag and, and, and that pendulum effect. And so all the underinvestment we've seen going through the pandemic, um, a lot of people divesting away from fossil fuels. Now it's like, oh, let's just go back and start producing wells. It's just the reality is it just doesn't happen that fast. And so, yeah, it's uh, it, it's it, we're in a we're in a very interesting position, um, you know. And, and again, like to kind of to, to supplement what Mark's saying, it's you know, demand is outrunning supply. You have all those refining the refining capacity. Um, you know, we're strained there. Uh, on top of that, inventories are being drawn down at historically high rates, which is you know kind of risky. Uh, supply capacity is low from, you know, not only the U S but even OPEC, uh, and then lower Russian supply with all the craziness that's going on over there. I think it's, uh, like 2 million a day is getting taken off the market, uh, here soon. So, I mean, either way, um, it, it's, it's hard to just point a finger. Um, it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of moving parts and it's very, it's a very complex system. And so to, 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 to kind of put someone in a bucket and say, they're the ones, um, you know, we could, to be honest, Mark, you could blame you and I for high oil prices because yep. oil companies produce hydrocarbons to meet the demand. Well, who sets the demand? Consumers. So if we want to, I mean, that's another thing. If we want to blame someone, let's blame the just people in general for consuming too much, you know, yeah. or having too many pools, too much electricity. I mean, you just never know. Yeah, the thing that you mentioned that I, I want to go back to is really important. You talked about a lot of people don't know. Um, this year has been amazing to me to watch the number of people that uh, that aren't fans of the oil and gas industry have to stop and learn and educate themselves a little bit about what's going on because of these high pump prices and the high food prices that are coming. Um, and it's this year I've, I've seen so many people come back to me and go, Mark, I didn't know. I didn't know. And so, you know, it's, it's rough right now, but if there's any, um, you know, a silver lining to the cloud is that I've seen a lot of people here in Europe realizing the importance of hydrocarbons. And, and I'm not saying they're saying hydrocarbons versus renewables. They're just understanding where hydrocarbons fit in the mix. And to me, that's a win. If we can get more of the world, more of the public to understand the realities instead of the spin by the politicians, it's just a win-win for the for us, lower energy prices and, and better, uh, you know, less impact to our world's environment. So the good thing is I'm seeing people finally learn a little bit about our industry, which I think is awesome. Right. And, and I think it goes both ways too, right? We all need to learn about each other and, and together we'll make, uh, you know, we'll, we'll make the dream work as they say. Um, let's, I mean, you, you spoke, you, you touched a little bit about, um, you know, politics, but, uh, the next article here says oil companies unload on Biden after his thinly veiled threats. This has been interesting. I've seen all sorts of shenanigans come through Twitter and LinkedIn and everything else, Mark, but what happened there? So Biden basically wrote a letter to the seven major oil companies insisting, not asking, insisting they increase oil refining operations to, the, uh, to help drop uh, fuel prices at the pump. And then, oh boy, <laughs> he opened a can of worms on that one. <laughs> yeah. um, literally every major oil company uh, in the world, uh, all the super majors, the American Petroleum Institute, the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers, and a whole bunch of trade organizations came back and said, look, point by point, 
in your letter, you're basically wrong. And this is one of the reasons that the public doesn't understand what's going on. So first thing, you can't build a refinery overnight. That's a multi-billion dollar investment. So asking us to build refineries as quick as we can right now makes no difference. The next thing is your administration politically has not inspired any confidence in us investing any money in anything that touches hydrocarbons, right? And so why would I spend billions of my dollars? Remember, you know, for somebody like Chevron, spending billions of their dollars, that's not their dollars. That's their shareholder dollars. Who are their shareholders? People like you and me, but also like institutions, uh, educations, um, retirement homes, right? So Chevron has a duty to make sure they don't spend money like crazy, right? So it's like, why would you do this when you don't give me the political – certainty to know that if I spend, you know, a few billion dollars over a 20 year construction plan, that at the end of that, you'll allow me to make business to get some of my investment back. And Justin, this is one of the things I've said this whole year that I'm worried about. The hydrocarbon industry will never disappear. But if the if the rules, regulations and financials don't work out, they will move out of the U.S. And Mm -hmm. especially with refineries, my big concern about that is the level of care and standards that our refineries uh, take for the environment. And I know these, I literally know these refinery managers by name, some of them anyway. And so Mm -hmm. if you would take a refinery, say the Chevron Pasigula, Mississippi refinery, and then replicate it in, let's say, China, I'm telling you right now, the degree in care, and I know it's still Chevron, but the degree in care to the environment will be less than than it is here just because the culture is different there. So if you're worried about the environment, you want our refineries and petrochemical plants and ethylene crackers to stay here, not be pushed out. Um, the other thing in this this letter is that um, he's especially asking for us to not only increase uh, – refinery uh, production, which we can't, we're running right at hundred percent right now. But the other thing is he's asking us to produce more crude. And Justin, and I just talked about how you can't do that. Even to the point, Justin, that uh, he, sh- I think it's today he's in Saudi Arabia asking the Saudis to produce mm-hmm. more. Um, and no matter what the Saudis or, Rope- or, or what Russia says, um, I don't think either one of them have any, not a spare drop of capacity. They right. say they can increase production if they want to. I don't believe they can. So it's literally us up to us, the U.S., who is coming back from an injury. If you want to think about like playing football, you know, we're back on the field. We were injured back in 2020 severely. You know, we tore two ACLs. And now we're coming back <laughs> and the coach is asking us to, to run our best game ever. And we're trying. But it's yeah. not it has nothing to do with what the oil companies are doing right now. You know, you hear a lot of people talking about making money, but you don't hear about the uh, seven years where we've lost money, right? So there has to be some type of balance there. Um, and I, I really wish, and uh, you know, sometimes you know, I'm, everybody knows I'm not a big fan of our present administration, but no administration, no matter which political side are you on, really knows our industry. We have one side that doesn't like us; the other side doesn't know what we do. I really wish we could either get better educated politicians around energy or disconnect it from politics completely like we've done with uh, the American dollar. But that's if that ever happens it's somewhere down the road. But, yeah. um, you know, but I, I, Justin, I'm proud of my industry. One of the things that I have not liked in the last, say, 10 years is there's a, a lot of times when people say something that's not true about our industry, we just stay quiet because we don't want to get caught up, especially with social media or PR type of stuff. And I really think this school, the whole industry came back and said, you're wrong. And let me show you where you're wrong. Yeah, no, it's uh, that's true. I mean, it's it's tough, right? We've we've had a black eye for so long and it's like you're you're damned if you're doing, you're damned if you don't. And then to come back and, you know, you're you know, your kind of analogy with with getting injured and then asking to play the best game. Yeah, it's tough, right? It's like, uh, you know, what do you want from us? You know, we're, we're trying to do the best we can. 
you know, we're producing, we're trying to meet demand. We're, I mean, you look at a lot of the majors are coming out with sustainability reports, making huge efforts to, you know, comply with regulations, uh, different policies. I mean, I work directly with a lot of these operators, a lot of small operators, a lot of bigger ones, and they're constantly doing everything they can to limit the amount of water they use, the amount of diesel they use, the amount of emissions. There's a there's a completely uh, some of the drilling contractors are coming out with electric rigs to make sure that their uh, carbon footprint is is reduced. I mean, to be in the weeds and to see the efforts and amount of money operators are spending to try and limit the amount of CO2 and the amount of emissions is just, it's phenomenal, but it costs money. Um, and so, you know, kind of going back to, uh, you know, our administration. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there's, there's challenges on both sides. You look at, um, I think when, uh, you know, when, when we were producing at, you know, insane amounts and we were, uh, and this was years ago, like going to the shale revolution, um, up until this point, we should have been filling up our strategic petroleum reserve and maxing it out and buying this, all this cheap oil and just ma- and like getting to the to the brim. Um, we didn't do that, and now here we are using it for other reasons. So, so again, to your point, Mark, I think the administration on both sides or any side is are just not quite as educated, and they don't have representatives that are truly in the weeds to understand what's going on. Uh, I think that'd be really interesting if we did, and. I think on the, I think June 23rd, so in a few days from now, um, like you said, Biden's going around having these meetings um, and in the Department of Energy uh, quoted here in, in hard energy, it says, as the president noted in his letter, he is also prepared to use all reasonable tools and authorities as appropriate to help increase capacity and output and reduce gas prices. What what does that mean? Do you, do you think, Mark? Like, I was curious. Like, he says, prepared to use all reasonable tools and authorities as a, appropriate to help increase capacity and output to reduce gas prices. What, what do you think that actually means? I think it's a veiled threat because he has under executive action the ability to freeze prices at the pump. Um, that, that doesn't mean he freezes what the the retailers are paying for the gasoline. So he could freeze it at five dollars a gallon through emergency action, even though mm. the the uh, the Retail station is paying seven dollars a gallon. You know, and and to add to that too, I, I also heard he's there's talks, and again, this is just talks about stimulus checks for people uh, to to help out with uh, gas prices, which to me is absurd. But again, don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But but again, it's it'll be interesting to see how we kind of navigate through the summer here with um, just you know everyone on the road driving. Uh, it'll be it'll be interesting. And and to again to just add to it, it's hard for us as an industry to turn on the taps is just simply not possible. What's next, Justin? Uh, we got here ExxonMobil statement regarding President Biden letter to the oil industry. So this is to kind of add to this, but ExxonMobil actually wrote a great letter in, in a response to uh, President Joe Biden. So um, this is the Exxon I've known and loved for 25 years. This is not Exxon the last five years. Uh, uh, Exxon came out of the corner throwing body blows left and right, landing all of them, uh, basically pushing back on the current administration with facts and figures and saying, look, we had to borrow money to keep production up during the pandemic. You didn't say a word. Globally, we've invested over $118 billion in new oil and gas supplies. Um, in the U.S., we invested over $50 billion, which is a 50% increase uh, over the last five-year period for refinery. 
Um, we've increased light crude production by $250,000 a barrel a day, and that's the equivalent of adding a new refinery. They kept investing during the pandemic, which nobody did. And so this is just Exxon coming out the gate. Instead of taking it uh, and being quiet about it, this is the old Exxon coming back and saying, not only are you wrong, here's why you're wrong. And let me know, here's how you can help if you really want to help. And so I know we have a lot of listeners at ExxonMobil. I am very proud of your, your executive team because I know people had to approve this. And I know it probably rubs some people the wrong way that Exxon's going to push back. But damn it, I think this is the right thing to do. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I think they did it in a respectful and factual way instead of putting emotion into it, which, you know, most companies do. But but I think it was very professionally and well written. So, yeah, big shout out to our, our uh, folks at Exxon. Uh, job well done. Uh, again, it's kind of keeping it here uh, on the U.S. side. Harold Ham launches $4.4 billion cash offer to take continental resources private. This was interesting. Mark, what do you think about this? Harold is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. So, but, and you talk a little bit about this, Justin. You probably know more about this than I do. Um, but basically, becoming a, being a public oil and gas company in the U.S. right now is not as beneficial as it used to be. So you're seeing a lot of companies go from public to private, and it affects things like reporting, uh, ESG, uh, use of your resources, taxes. And so what he's doing is he owns most of Continental anyway. And so he's asking the marine shareholders, say, hey, look, let me buy back your, your shares at a, uh, I think he's asking $70 a, a pop, which is a good valuation. And he wants to take this, this, uh, this industry, this uh, company private. Now, why do you think they want to take this private, uh, Justin? Besides what I mentioned about it, making it easier to run business at private, there's also has to be some financial drivers of this. I would imagine, I mean, to be honest, I don't know. I mean, maybe the prop to have more control, um, instead of having a board of directors kind of, uh, I don't know, drive their decisions. No, I think, you're, I, don't know. I think you're spot on. So you get rid of the board of directors. Once they finish this acquisition and they and they uh, own the entire company, it's going to create more cash flow. It's actually going to create about $3 billion of cash flow. Now, if you're heading into a bull run in oil and gas markets, which I believe we are, I think the next 10 years it will be unbelievably hot for the oil and gas industry, and you own some of the best acreage in the U.S., you think of acquisitions. And what do you need to do for acquisitions where you could go into debt or you could use your own cash? I think a part of this, Justin, is he's getting ready to snap up a bunch of smaller operators. And the way he's going to do it, he's going to pay for it himself. And how he's going to pay for it himself, the free cash flow generated by, by bringing, um, um, bringing um, um, Continental private. So let's mm. see if I'm right about that. But but I just I love the fact that he's bringing it private. This is actually more job security uh, for his employees. Um, it's they're going to be able to operate at higher margins, so their the work conditions and the ability to hire people should actually go up. Um, he's a good guy. He knows what he's doing. He's been doing this for for a very long time, um, and you know everything he touches tends to turn to gold. So I, I'm looking forward to see what's happening and see where he takes his company. Yeah. Oh, that makes total sense, actually. Yeah. I mean, if you've got full control, you don't have to go to your investors and have votes on anything. It's like if he sees right. someone that's valued at a fair price, he's going to use his free cash flow to snatch it up. But yeah, that makes sense. And again, shout out to him. I mean, I think I think he owns a roughly like 80 percent already or something. So um, this is uh, certainly not much to, you know, to, to move to this next step um, isn't a huge task, I don't think, for him. Yeah, and if anybody knows Harold Ham, um, and I would love to have him on one of our shows, have, reach out, make the connection. I, I would love to actually talk to him in person on this because I think this is stupid, super strategic thinking on his part. Yeah, that'd be phenomenal. Uh, moving on to the uh, across the pond here, EU lawmakers endorse ban on combustion engine cars in 2035. Yeah, 
<laughs> I almost want to go, let's see what how well that goes. No <laughs> but kidding. so so the the heart's in the right place. And and, and a little bit of note here. Um it, today in 2022, if you were magic, if you were Harry Potter, and you could remove all of the passenger and commercial vehicles off our road by waving a magic wand, you would drop the US's air pollution a total of one percent. Our cars now, I have a 2020 Infinity. Um, that 2020 Infinity at 80 miles an hour puts out 95% less of the emissions than my 1967 Mustang puts out while it's parked in the garage, not running. And that sounds incredible, right? It's not. The Mustang had a carburetor. It did not have a closed fuel system, so fuel was vented to the atmosphere even when the car wasn't running. No catalytic converters, no lean burn technology, um, no computer making sure the engines run as efficient as it could. Um, and so... You know, and, and I get the hearts in the right place in Europe. They want to remove all internal combustion engines by 2035. Number one, it's it's probably less than 5% of their, their emissions in the entire country. Most of it, I guarantee you, is from coal-fired electric plants. Number two, unfortunately, unless something magically changes, electric vehicles are for wealthy people. The cost of electric vehicles, you cannot get it down as low as you can internal combustion engines. So do I think this – do I, do I think they're going to – do I think this is – um. They, they're going to endorse and approve it. Yeah. Do I think it's practical? No. Do I think there will be no internal combustions engines, <laughs> cars in 2035 in Europe? No freaking way. Um, but, but you know, we'll see if somebody has a breakthrough, especially in uh, fuel cell technology, where we can go from trying to power electric cars for batteries, which actually, you know, a battery doesn't generate electricity, just stores it. But a fuel cell actually generates it. That might be a good switch right there. And maybe they could pull it off. But once again, I think th these are politicians trying to make their political side happy and and the way they're trying to make it happy is something that's in everybody's face which is cars but if you really look at emissions as a whole you know you're not tackling the bigger emitters out there so um I, like i said I, I i'll put money that by 2035 there are still internal combustion engines on the car and on the road in europe and here and everywhere else on the road yeah no like you said the heart's in the right place and, and the intent is good and uh, yeah, it's tough to say the whole electric vehicle, uh, conversation is, uh, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of debate going on and unfortunately it always comes back to politics, which is just unfortunate. Um, but, it, it, but ultimately I, I do, again, looking at combustion engines, internal combustion engines, the, the efficiency gains, uh, and the technology that's put being put into these things. I mean, I would be surprised if in 10 years, even an internal combustion engine has, barely any uh emissions um and so yeah it's uh again why 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 does it have to be us or them why can't we just you know improve everything to collectively <laughs> you know no you're right and, and people i love electric car justin have you driven tesla yet no but my wife got to sit in one uh one of her business contacts has one and she thought it was so cool and i do like it i i, I would honestly buy one if it you know for me and my transportation around the city uh logistically it doesn't quite make sense right now because i travel quite a bit um but anyway, it's yeah, they're cool. Dude, I would love to have. One, I've to driven honest. a couple. It's they're not electric cars. They're awesome cars that just happen to be electric. I mean, they're right. they're incredible. The problem is the battery weight. So the fastest Tesla weighs almost eight thousand pounds. Has mm. to have special tires, right, because of the weight of the car. And if we can just reduce that weight. And to your point earlier, there's so much efficiencies in electric vehicles. Most of the energy and internal combustion engine generates is dumped in the air as heat, uh, because that engine has to be light enough to have the car actually move itself. But if you take that same, in, that combustion process at, at a uh, electrical generation plant running a, uh, say natural gas turbine, that turbine can be 
billions and billions of tons and capture every BTU a heat. So it's very efficient from a fuel side conversion. And then the other thing is electric motors um, have 100% of their torque at one RPM, which means you don't need a transmission in an electric car, right? So 20% of your power that you generate by the internal combustion engine is lost through friction in the transmission. Well, with an electric car, you don't have that either. So super efficient. It's that battery thing. Man, if we can just get around that battery thing, and like I said, I think fuel cells might be the wave of the future. And if I'm right about that, then the exhaust from electric car being powered by a fuel cell will be drinkable water, which is not a bad thing at all. No kidding. Yeah, no battery technology. There, there's. I mean, I, I don't play in that sandbox, but I, I read enough to know there's a lot of, a lot of money, uh, in, you know, academia, even in the private sector, really putting a bunch of effort into battery technology, which I think would be great um, on a number of different reasons. Uh, so, on you know, I'm staying over on that part of the world, Russia, uh, their largest gas field on fire after pipe burst. Mark, I saw the headline, but I didn't read into this. What happened there? So here's what I find really interesting. So, you know, Russia uh, and actually the U.S. sometimes and definitely Saudi Arabia uses uh, energy or uses hydrocarbons as a weapon, right? So back in the 80s when President Reagan decided he wanted to bankrupt the Soviet Union because we're in his arms race, he figured out that if he just killed their oil and gas business, they couldn't fund the war machine. Same thing happened in the 70s when um, – the Saudis were upset with our relationship with uh, uh, Israel, and so we had the uh, the, ga- the uh, fuel crisis in the 70s. And so right now, because of what's going on in the Ukraine, Russia's using its natural gas supply, to your point earlier, now that Europe's in its winter, as a weapon. And so um, t- this gas fire happens a day after Russia notified Germany and Italy they were going to cut their natural gas supplies, right? That that cutting their natural gas supplies is a threat, is, is a um, look, if you want your country and your people to freeze, keep going down this political route and not supporting what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. So first thing I find it highly suspicious is fire broke out at this time. I, I actually think it was probably some some bad players that did this on purpose. Hard to figure out which side of the, the, the fence they would be on. Um, the cool thing is um, production was uh, brought back online. It didn't take them very long. They lost some pressure in, in a couple of lines. Uh, they had a fire. They still can't figure out where the f- uh, how the fire actually started. There was no leakage in the pipeline. But anytime you drop pressure, you open up for a lot of those seals that normally the pressure holds them flat against the seats to, to especially if they're old to open up and you could at low pressure have some leakage uh, they're able to get the fire out relatively quickly and then the best thing is as far as i know nobody got hurt so um you know good thing nobody got hurt the timing of this fire and the fact they can't pin it down is very suspicious to me um and it, you know if i'm wrong and it was just a fire that's great if i'm right we probably will never know what actually really happened yeah, no, there's definitely some, uh, you know, it could be draw some suspicion there. Um, yeah, it, it's tough to say. But again, I didn't uh, dive too much into this one. But, um, you know, moving on to, is it, I think it's any, uh, the European, the, the Italian company uh, says Gazprom cuts gas flows to Italy by about 15%. Yeah, so all you out there call this Ian and I, they hate that. It's not Ian and I, it's any. Just like it's not Slumberger, it's Slumberger, okay? Yeah. Um, yeah, so 15% is huge, especially to a country like Italy that's 100% dependent on Russia for its energy. 
Um, they're they're reducing a pipeline, um, and they're saying it's because of technical issues um, at one of their lifts, one of their pump stations, um, which I don't believe at all. I 100% believe this is a politically motivated, uh, basically uh, saying, hey, Italy, here's a taste of what's to come during the winter unless you toe the line. And Justin, one of the things I've, I've and I've said this before, but I just, it warms my heart. And I know warfare is a horrible thing on both sides, no matter what, but when Russia invaded Ukraine, myself and everybody else I knew expected it would last about an hour that Russia would, would just wipe out Ukraine, take over. And it was the, 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 the spunk and the fight of the Ukraine people kept that from happening. Mm-hmm. And then I was very surprised at how many countries around the world said, you know what, we're supporting Ukraine and Ukraine's no angel either, but what Russia did was wrong. And so you haven't countries reduce or eliminate buying Russian hydrocarbons because that's how they fund their machine. And it's really, it's, it's, it's crippled Russia's economy already. So it's, it's interesting to see the whole world, even with all the political stuff go back and forth, when something bad happens, we come together and we try to make it right. Now, what's the end result? I don't know. Uh, unfortunately, Ukraine, even though they're putting up a great fight, their casualties keep mounting. And even though a bunch of countries are are bringing in uh, war supplies and, and money and everything else without people, you just can't fight. Um, so at some point, I, I think there's going to have to be an agreement made. I don't know what that's going to look like. Um, but I, once again, back to this article, I think this is Russia basically warning uh, any or warning Italy, you know, we can cut it 15 percent today. We can cut it 90 percent tomorrow unless you tow the line. And the cool thing is, I, uh, as a follow up to this article, I was actually read about 15 minutes ago, a, a reply from the prime minister. And basically in political talk, he said, bring it. Oh, wow. I mean, literally, he said, "Bring it." Wow. That we're not, we're not doing anything. So, uh, we'll keep an eye on all this. You know, once again, it's it's Russia trying to uh, use oil as a weapon, or, or using oil as a weapon, and it's just. I, I just love the fact that countries aren't aren't caving in like they would have done, you know, ten years ago. Yeah, no, I think people are tired of it, and and this is a good opportunity to plant their flag and, uh, you know, fight for what they believe in. And so, yeah, I, I get it. Uh, moving back to uh, domestically here on the uh, SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve side of things, this article is USA sells more oil from the Strategic Reserve. Mark, what do you think about this? This is horrible. And you mentioned this earlier. Um, you're right. that Anytime crude is cheap, we should as a nation take some money and fill it up. And if you don't know what the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is – it's basically to power our war machine. If something really bad happened, if the aliens did invade, uh, if this <laughs> Russian-Ukraine uh, thing got out of effect, if China decided it was time, whatever, this is so no matter how bad it's getting, our our military would have access to hydrocarbons to fund the, to run the uh, war machine. Uh, other countries have this as well. Japan has this. Saudi Arabia has this. Um, uh, China has this. Um, ours is one of the largest in the world. So what our current administration has done is – told the American public that we're going to take this reserve and we're going to dump this crude on the market to help you at the pump. That is a PR stunt. We, we, we don't have enough. You know, we run through 20 million barrels a day here in the U.S. That's just here in the U.S. And you got to remember, all supplies are global. So we'd have to be able to dump enough oil in the market to affect the entire world, not just the U.S. Right. And it's just not enough. And the problem, Justin, is this is one of the, the – our strategic holding reserve is lowest that it's been in, I think, 10 or 15 years. It's down to, I think, 20% of its capacity. That scares the old Marine to me to death. Yeah. And so, you know, if if this was anything other than a political stunt, I mean, if we needed it, I would support it. But it, it doesn't affect prices. And and no hate mail. I do know that it did affect prices for about three hours, right? But in the grand scheme of things, it, it doesn't <laughs> affect prices. And 
we need to make sure this uh, strategic pro reserve is full all the time unless something really bad happens. It's not something for our politicians to dip their finger in whenever they want to from a PR point of view because they're worried about the next election. I almost wish, Justin, they would deconnect this from politics and not give um, – a, a, or not give the ability for an executive action. So basically the president to be able to tap into this, it should at least be a committee that has to vote on it. Um, because, yeah. you know, we're down to 20%. If, if the aliens would, and please, I'm not really thinking aliens are, are attack us, but if the aliens would attack <laughs> us now, we're not in a great shape. Right. So um, let's hope we can quickly fill this thing back up. The problem though, Justin is the, the, the financials. So um, I don't see oil dropping back down, you know, to, to $40 a barrel and, in, in the next 10 years. So whenever we fill this back up, we're going to lose money. So, you know, so it's just, it's, it's a lose, lose all the way around. Let's just hope somebody has enough common sense to go, you know what, let's get this thing filled back up quickly. Yeah, no, that that's an interesting point. And, and to talk to a lot of people, uh, yeah, you're right. It, it's not a tool to use to fluctuate gas prices or, you know, gasoline prices. It's, it's, and, and I didn't know this, to be honest. I mean, I knew it was a strategic and an emergency stockpile, but I didn't realize, you know, the, the the real intent is for military. If in case there is a a world war or just something where we need to fuel our military, that there's enough in there. I don't know how much it takes or like what the military consumption would be. I mean, that'd be getting into the the numbers pretty deep. <laughs> but either way, um, before uh, you know, in 2020, I think we capped out at about 650 million, um, and we're well below. I think we're about like four, you know. 20 maybe 430 I, I was around it's below 550 i know that um but but again if you look at a graph and i graphed it out for uh, some stuff that i do internally within my company um and it's just it, it literally i mean we haven't been able to fill back up that strategic petroleum reserve but if 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 oil prices continue down the path that they are yeah that presents a lot of risk to our energy security and without getting into energy security i encourage anyone out there just to google what is u.s energy security to kind of understand because that that's uh, that's something that plays into all this as well as if you don't have any uh spr or enough to to be able to fuel your military that really that's there's a lot of risk there um on a number of different levels so just just more to think about um perhaps more educating on a personal side of things uh to understand the complexity of what's happening right now yeah, I'll give you a data point that's interesting. So you take one of our older fighters, an F-16 fighter, it will burn 1,500 gallons of fuel in 27 seconds with full afterburners. Say, say that number again for the kids in the back, Mark. <laughs> so you take one of our older fighters, the F-16s. Yeah. When it's under full afterburners, it will burn 1,500 gallons of fuel in 27 seconds. <laughs> that's insane, man. Is that insane? Yeah. So you talk oh. about consumption. Yeah, it's it's a lot, obviously. So we want to have that tapped, uh, topped off as much as we can. But uh, and again, the intent is good. The heart's in the right place. But, um, you know, different tool, different shed. Um, anyway, moving on. Uh, last but not least, uh, on the Venezuelan side of things, Venezuelan oil exports to Europe set to resume after two years. This is really a much bigger thing than anybody's thinking of. So if you listen to the show for any length of time, you know that our refineries are set up to process heavy crude, which is very complex, but you get a great yield out of it or better yield. Most of the world's refineries are set up to handle lighter crudes like we produce here in the U.S. because it's easier to refine. Basically, you just boil it. So uh, there's only a handful of places we can get the heavy, complex crude that our refineries love. Canada, the Middle East, and Venezuela. Now, Venezuela, because of politics for a very long time, um, we have not um, bought any crude from them. And their economy has 
tanked. I was lucky enough, just in the 80s, to visit Venezuela before they uh, nationalized all the oil fields. Mm. And it was like the biggest, beautiful, tropical postcard the entire country was. I mean, it was the food was phenomenal. The hotels were incredible. And everybody was dressed to a T. And all that disappeared. Uh, They can't buy diapers for their kids. They can't buy medical supplies. They can't feed their population because nobody's buying their oil. And one of the reasons nobody's buying their oil is when they nationalized everything, they kicked out Exxon and Chevron and all their engineers and project managers, and they took the guys in the field and turned them into managers of the refineries. And so there's just a steady decline. Uh, They're dangerous as hell. Stuff leaks everywhere. You talk about horrible for their environment. They don't even care because they're just trying to survive. And so what's kind of cool about this is with the U.S. blessing, um, it looks like Repersol is taking a load of um, or a load of uh, Venezuelan crude, very complex crude. And the thing I like about this is that the U.S. State Department and Spain and also Italy are working together this. Now, if we can get to the point that we work with the nationalized oil company in Venezuela, which is Petrovesa, um, we can actually start bringing back in that expertise in engineering and environmental science and pipelines and everything in production and help get their production back up, which will then help the, the feed their people, right, and bring up the standard of living over there. So I think it's about time, same way with Cuba. Uh, you know, we boycotted Cuba for a very long time, and, and it, it served its point. Uh, but I think it's time to normalize those relations. Uh, the The government in Venezuela that hated the U.S. is no longer in power. Um, the people there are suffering. They have they have a huge amount of conventional heavy crude reservoirs, which is super valuable to us. Physically, they're so close to us. It's crazy. You know, so I just think it's time for us to come back in. Now, I do remember this. And if you've been around long enough, I remember Chevron and Exxon both saying that when they were kicked out, because they built all that infrastructure, they drilled, they drilled all those wells, they made all that financial investment, and then overnight they were kicked out. I remember both of them saying, we'll be back. And it just would be kind of cool if they come back during this time in a helpful, beneficial way uh, for the, the population of Venezuela. So this has kind of flown under the radar. I think this is a great thing. And I think if it goes the right direction, it's just going to benefit the people in Venezuela and, and help them get out of this you know 30-year a streak of poverty you've had to live in. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I know Venezuela, uh, you know, even just knowing some Venezuelans um, here in, in Houston and in, in Katy, it's uh, it's just sad to hear, uh, you know, what they've had to go through. And so if this could help lift them out from underneath what they've been having to face over the last few years, it would be, um, just, it would be amazing. Um, Mark, do you have any idea how much uh, Venezuela – produced at one time or what their export capacity is at all or and if not that's fine i just more curious than anything uh they were you know right right before they were nationalized they were killing i mean i can't remember what the numbers were but the problem justin is all the infrastructure is now gone i mean people stole people cut up and steal the copper wires that lets everything communicate because they want the copper to sell on the market. They, they cut up the steel. They've torn down the terminals. I mean, literally the infrastructure is gone. So it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of capital investment, a lot of engineering, but it's time to do it. Um, I, yeah. I just I, I just think it's cool that if, if we support this as, as citizens of the U.S. and we do it the right way, well, now we're buying less heavy crude from the Middle East and more heavy crude from a country that can appreciate it, that the money goes instead of to Lamborghini collections, it goes to hospitals and roads and schools. I just think it's the right thing to do. And, and the people of Venezuela are some of the most wonderful people in the world. If you've ever met them, just fantastic people. So I think it's time for us to do this. Yeah, most definitely. And and one quick note on that, my uh, my daughter, or, well, she's in kindergarten now, but my son goes to Spanish Learning Castle here in uh, Katy, and it's ran by... Uh, you know, 
folks from Venezuela. And again, it's, uh, yeah, some of the most heartwarming, beautiful people uh, with such a great culture, um, you know, and, and just a lot of folks in oil and gas have come here from Venezuela to, to Houston. And uh, again, it would be super cool to see uh, see that kind of turn around. But uh, that's it for the news articles. Well, Scory, Mark, sound like you're about to say something. Yeah, you know what else is super cool? What's that? If you want to go work someplace free in Houston, the Canon. All you do is walk up to the front desk and say, hey, we're friends of OGGN. They'll give you a free day pass. It's one of the most awesome co-working spaces in the city. It's also where we do our industry mixers. So go check it out if you have a need. And then uh, rig count, Justin, did you get a chance to actually look up what the weekly rig count is? I did, Mark. And that's, you know, this this holds true, uh, kind of a close place to my heart because I live and die uh, by rig count. And so... Uh, this week is plus seven for 740 rigs here in the U.S. And that's up 270 from last year, which is uh, which is pretty cool. Awesome. What yes. about in Canada? Uh, in Canada, we've got 156, so up 15 from last week, which is good because now we're coming out of breakup. Uh, and so in, for that, you know, during spring and, and early summer, um, there's not a lot of rigs uh, deployed just because of logistic constraints. Uh, so, yeah, now, you know, summertime, they ramp up pretty heavily and then even ramp up more towards the fall. So uh, it's, you know, as we say in Canada, it's blowing and going right now up in Canada. And then internationally, we've got 817 rigs up 11 from last week. All good stuff. Hey, Justin, since you're Canadian, talk real quick about the freeze and, and actually working on the rigs. A lot of Americans don't understand why the rig count fluctuates in Canada, and they don't understand that you can't work in muddy ground. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question, Mark, and it seems obvious to me. Um, but again, in Canada, uh, you have a lot of a lot of the rigs are very remote, which, you know, of course, down here they are as well. But uh, most of the, the activity happens in the Western Canadian sedimentary basin. So Saskatchewan, Manitoba and farther west. Um, but as the further west you go into the Rockies, uh, you get into the forest uh, sort of environments. And what happens is during wintertime, it's extremely cold. So everything freezes. Uh, well, as temperatures increase, then uh, <clears throat> the ground thaws out and there's a lot of road bands. And so when you're hauling equipment in and out of the bush, they call it, uh, you know, it, it, there's a lot of risk involved. And so there's a lot of regulations put in place where you can only travel to, to certain areas during these times. And so what happens is you you drill and you you deploy rigs as much as you possibly can in, in the months that it's extremely cold. So let's just say, you know, September, October, all the way through till uh, May-ish. Uh, yeah, you drill and then once it gets once it gets warm, then you, you either you warm stack the rigs. Um, so what will happen is they'll just whatever location uh, it was on before breakup happens, which is spring breakup, the rigs will just sit there. Then you'll have a rig hand or two watch the rig for a couple months or it could be a few weeks. Again, it's very area specific, but generally speaking, once it gets warmer, the rig, everything kind of slows down. A lot of the stuff in the on the prairies, which is like the farmland, the flatland, that keeps going because there's not as many constraints. But a lot of the rigs happen sort of western Alberta and northeastern British Columbia, where the thick ground just gets way too soft to move any equipment. So you have to wait till it gets hot for the ground to dry up. They lift the road bands, and then everyone just goes guns ablazing again once it gets hot um, and everything dries up. And so it makes it tough. Uh, you know, I worked rigs up there for a few years when I first broke out and yeah, you may work, you know, 30, 40, 50 days straight. Um, cause you basically try and work as much as you can. Cause once breakup comes, it's very weather dependent. So you may work six months 
uh, you know, almost every day, but then you may not work for three months. And so it's a very, it's, it's, it's not like down here. Most folks say, okay, if I'm on a rig that's drilling consistently, I'll work a two week, two, in, two weeks on, two weeks off could be for however many years the drilling campaigns last, but up there it's, it's, it's very seasonal, if you will. What a great explanation, because we've had people ask before about the differences in Canadian rig counts. I always try to explain it, but you did a very poetic job of doing that. <laughs> Thanks. And yeah, rig count real quick, too. Uh, you know, again, that's I speak in my language on the rig counts that uh, Permian continues to dominate. And, you know, if, if everyone knows that Permian is, is what the biggest, uh, biggest play here in the U.S. and arguably the world. Uh, the second one is the Haynesville. And, uh, you know, I just got to laugh because for so long, everyone thought the Haynesville was dead. And, and Haynesville is mostly gas, whereas in the Permian, um, the reason there's so many rigs there is there's so many benches that you can drill and produce out of. Uh, and by that, I mean different formations. It's like a sandwich of oil and gas and, and a lot of the associated gas. Um, but anyway, it's uh, the Haynesville, the Eagleford, and the Permian are, are the are the biggest basins right now with the most rig count, in case anyone was curious. See, folks, why you should go over and listen to Justin's new show when he's up and running? See, look at his expertise literally on the microphone. <laughs> I, don't, uh, so, I, I don't want to claim an expert, but I know a thing or two. <laughs> well, so knowing a thing or two, you can find a lot of the information on LinkedIn. So go to LinkedIn, anything that says OGG, and just go ahead and sign up for it. Biggest thing is to sign up for our company page. That's where we do all the notifications. Uh, even the contests we're running right now to, re to re replace Justin, like he's not on the microphone with me. <laughs> even the <laughs> contests we're running to find Justin's replacement is on LinkedIn. So go there, sign up. While you're out there, go to the website, uh, uh, sign up for our first Friday Q&A. If we use your question on the air, you'll get a big shout out. If you're interested in oil and gas events, we have a free monthly oil and gas events newsletter. Uh, links in the show notes for that as well. If you'd like myself or any of our experts, come to your uh, uh, marketing kickoff, your sales kickoff. You want us to do a keynote. You have a bunch of executives. You want us to do some explaining about what's going on today in the oil and gas industry. Reach out. We all love to speak. Um, and then, Justin. Dude, it's um, I'm going to miss you, quite honestly. You've been a part of this team for a very long time. You're one of our best podcasters. You run one of our top shows. And I'll, and the audiences see that. But what they don't see is you're always the first one to ask to help. If something goes bad, if something's wrong, you don't think twice. And you're always uh, sticking your hand out saying, what can I do to make things better? And I love that about you. And I know we'll stay in touch. Um, and I wish you much success. But just thank you for playing a part with OGGN for so long. Well, hey, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity back when I was just a young whippersnapper trying to get into the podcasting world. It's uh, It's been an amazing journey. I've learned a ton. I've worked with some of the most amazing people in oil and gas. Uh, yeah, and just seeing the growth within OGGN and, and being a part of it uh, has been a, just a phenomenal opportunity. And for everyone out there who listens, I just genuinely appreciate the support and not just for the oil and gas onshore, but for all of them, the, the, how we can educate ourselves and how we deliver a message to people who aren't in our industry uh, is going to be extremely critical as we continue to move forward. And so uh, for everyone out there in the field, at the executive level and everyone in between, uh, I genuinely appreciate it. I've been on both sides and I just couldn't be more happy to be part of OGGN, the continued growth. If there's anything I can do to help and support, uh, again, reach out to me on LinkedIn uh, or if you have my number, please do. And Mark, thank you for everything you've done and all the support you've given me. And for the for Technip FMC, they've been a huge sponsor, a very loyal sponsor. And uh, I'm just looking forward to seeing them continue to help uh, OGGN and vice versa. All right, dude, as much as I hate to do it, we need to get out of here. So remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. See you, everybody. 
Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.